Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6. That passage that was just read will be our text this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And the title for the sermon is taken directly from verse 5. The Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. Now beginning in Luke chapter 5, we have studied a series of questions raised by the scribes and Pharisees. Either directly or through suggestions, they have asked Jesus, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And in Luke chapter 6, we see a fourth question raised by the Pharisees. Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Now from this text, through both the miracle that Jesus performed and the answer that Jesus gave, we learn this great truth, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. By the grace of God, may we faithfully apply it. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's open up in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we come to this text, pray that you would open our, our minds and our hearts to receive what your word has here for us. Lord, help us to correctly apply this. Lord, help us to live in the light of this revelation. Bring conviction, Lord, where we need conviction. Bring encouragement where we need conviction. Lord, we pray that we would walk in such a way as to honor and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first let's look at the question that was raised by the Pharisees in this text. Luke gives an interesting detail there at the beginning of verse 1. It came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first. The Jews would count the seven weeks between the Passover and Pentecost by numbering the Sabbaths in the manner that we read here in verse 1. And so this lets us know what time of the year it was. It was the spring of the year, and in that part of the world, the first harvest of grain would just be turning ripe, and that corresponds with what we read in the rest of verse 1. Verse 1 goes on to tell us that on that particular Sabbath day, he, Jesus, went through the cornfields, and his disciples that were with him plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. That's a very simple scene that's laid out here before us. It's the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking through this field, and the disciples have picked some of these ears of corn, some of these heads of grain, and they are eating it. Now, on the surface, nothing seems remarkable about this scene. But in verse 2, the the Pharisees ask a question. Verse 2 tells us, Certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you eat that, or excuse me, why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? But what was it in verse 1 that the Pharisees took issue with? Was it the walking? Probably not. They were okay with people walking on the Sabbath day, as long as you did not walk further than 2,000 cubits, which is what they had determined to be an acceptable Sabbath day's journey. Well, maybe it was this walking through a field of grain. And again, that's probably not the issue. Now, their rules did forbid people from going to their own fields or gardens on the Sabbath day, even just to look at them. But you were not forbidden from walking in your neighbor's fields. 
Well, maybe it was uh, the disciples' act here of taking someone's grain that bothered the Pharisees. And though, once again, we see that's not the problem. The Mosaic Law specifically allows this behavior. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 25 tells us, When you come into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle upon thy neighbor's standing corn. So what the disciples did here was perfectly fine under the law of God. The issue for the Pharisees was the actual plucking of the grain and eating it on the Sabbath day. Now this this was an offense to them. They saw this as a terrible violation of the Sabbath. Their actual rule concerning this says, He that reaps on the Sabbath day ever so little is guilty of stoning. And plucking of ears of corn is a derivative of reaping. Here's an example of the Jews making a religious rule that not only goes beyond what God revealed in his law, but actually contradicts what God said. Listen again to that verse in Deuteronomy 23:25. When you come into the standing corn of thy neighbor, you may pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle upon thy neighbor's standing corn. So here the law of God makes a clear distinction between this plucking of ears and reaping. But the Jews, in the rules and forms that they had invented in their attempts to keep the law of God, they had equated these two things together and said they are, in fact, the same. And so when the Pharisees see the disciples of Jesus plucking this grain and eating it on the Sabbath day, they say, why are you doing that which is not lawful? Why are you doing that which is not allowed on the Sabbath days? Now, Jesus answered them directly, beginning in verse 3. He answered and said, Have ye not read so much as this? Now, Jesus is about to refer to an event that's recorded in the book of 1 Samuel uh, as an example to vindicate the actions of his disciples. But in this opening, Jesus calls into question the authority of the Pharisees. They had claimed to be great supporters and ardent students of the Old Testament Scriptures, And yet their questions make them appear ignorant of what those very scriptures say. If they had not read the scriptures, then certainly they were not fit to be teachers of others, much less to act as judges. And more than that, if they were not thorough students of scripture, then they had neglected the study of that which was most important. Now we can be almost certain that the Pharisees were familiar with this episode in 1 Samuel to which Jesus is about to refer. They knew what God's Word said. They were not ignorant. They had a high appreciation for the Word of God. But they held their first loyalty to their rules and traditions that they had created. Now look at the actual example that Jesus cites there in verses 3 and 4. Have you not read so much as this? What David did when himself was hungered, and they which were with him, how he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. Now this was a fairly well-known story. It still is a fairly well-known story. If you grew up in a Christian environment, you're probably familiar with this account in the life of David. King Saul was jealous of David. King Saul had determined that he would kill David, even though David had been a loyal and devoted servant to him. Uh, David escaped from King Saul's initial plots that were made against his life, and he was now a fugitive, he was on the run, and he had nothing with him. 
And when he got to the city of Nob, where the tabernacle was set up at that time, he asked Ahimelech the priest for some bread. And Ahimelech told David, I have nothing. The only bread that I have is the showbread. Now that showbread had several distinctive and symbolic elements to it. And you can read about those in Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, they tell us about the showbread. But what's important for us to know is that the ceremonial law says that the bread is to be eaten by the priests in the holy place. That was one of the requirements that went along with this bread. Now, Ahimelech gave David this bread, which he took with him for his journey. Ahimelech the priest said, I don't have any bread but this, and he gave it to David. Now, why? Because David was in distress. He had a genuine need for the bread, and thus the priest gave him the bread. Now, what does this account illustrate? That the ceremonial law was not intended for the hurt of man. That there was room in the ceremonial law of God for compassion to meet present and pressing needs. And if that's true of even the ceremonies which God had appointed, certainly it was true of the traditions of the Pharisees. Well, so far from this text, we've seen Jesus questioned by the Pharisees about his disciples' behavior on the Sabbath day. Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days, they asked. And Jesus answered, and he gives this Old Testament illustration to show that his disciples had in fact not violated God's law. And then, as we go on in this text, we see this incredible statement in Luke chapter 6, verse 5. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now keep this statement in mind. We're going to come back to it. But right now, we're going to look at the miracle of healing that we find uh, next in this account from Luke. Luke's gospel goes on from this scene in the field to another occasion in the Lord's ministry when he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. The man with the withered hand. In verses 6 and 7, we're introduced to three main characters or groups in this account. First, in verse 6, we're told, And it came to pass, also on another Sabbath, that he entered into the synagogue and taught. This was a separate occasion. It was on another Sabbath. And look where Jesus went. He went into the synagogue. Now, we've talked about this earlier as we've gone through the book of Luke, but the synagogues were those local centers for worship. And the Jews would be gathered there on the Sabbath day, and there the Old Testament scriptures would be read and taught. And although there were serious flaws in the worship of the Jews, yet we find Jesus faithful in his attendance at these synagogues. Where the scriptures were read and the people were taught, there we find our Lord. May we follow his example and be faithful to sit under the reading and teaching of the Word of God. Now verse 6 tells us, that Jesus had an opportunity to teach the people. In this text, we have another example of an occasion in the life of Christ where he performed a miracle. But that miracle was not the main reason he was there. The miracles performed by Jesus Christ supported and were auxiliary to his teaching and preaching ministry. Now, the second important character that we're told of in this account is found there in the second part of verse 6. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. A man whose right hand was withered. Now, we're given very few details about this man. All we know is what is told to us here. 
He was a man. His right hand was withered, dried up, crippled. There was something terribly wrong with his hand. And he was at the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's all really the background information that we have. And finally, in verse 7, we're told of the last group, the third group. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him. There was a contingent of the scribes and Pharisees who were present, and they were watching Jesus. Now, why? Why were they watching Jesus? Why were they so interested in Jesus? Well, verse 7 goes on and tells us, they were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. They were not interested to learn from Jesus. They were not interested in seeing miracles that he performed for miracles' sake. They were following Jesus around, watching him carefully to see if he would heal anyone on the Sabbath day. Now, why does this matter? Well, they wanted to find fault with Jesus. The end of verse 7 tells us that they might find an accusation against him. Do you remember the account of Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel in the lion's den. And remember the, the enemies of Daniel exercised against him, angry at him, angry at the position that he held and the favor that he held. They wanted to find some way to accuse Daniel. But though they observed his life carefully, they could find no fault in him, nothing to accuse him. And so they had to plot and scheme and contrive a way to get Daniel in trouble for the good things that he did. So it was for the scribes and Pharisees. They could not find anything in the life of Jesus to discredit his ministry. Their questions and their arguments had proven futile. And so now, like the enemies of Daniel, they tried to find a way to accuse Jesus for the good deeds that he performed. Now, we see Jesus question the Pharisees in verses 8 and 9. So far in our study of Luke, we've seen several questions brought to Jesus, but on this occasion, Luke tells us that Jesus began the questioning. And verse 8 begins by telling us, He, Jesus, knew their thoughts. The thoughts, the plans, the schemes, the ill intentions of the scribes and Pharisees were not hidden from our Lord. Now, this may have been divine insight, or it may have been apparent to anyone who was there. The scribes and the Pharisees, they have not been subtle about their opinion of Jesus and his ministry. They're exercised against him. Now, Jesus knew why they were there, and he forced the issue with the question he was about to ask. Jesus first, he says to the man with the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. Now, put yourself in the position of this man for a moment. Again, we, we know hardly anything about him. We don't know how old he was. We don't know what happened to his hand. Was he born this way? Was this the result of some sort of accident? Was he in pain? Was he embarrassed by this physical deformity? Had he struggled with those sort of questions that we would struggle with? Why did this happen to me? Why did God allow this to come upon me? Was he hopeful that Jesus would heal him? Again, all these questions we might have about this man and we're simply not told. But we do know that he was there at that synagogue where the word of God was being read and taught. He was there when Jesus was there, and he was listening. And we know he was listening because when Jesus told him to do something, he immediately obeyed. The end of verse 8 tells us, he arose and stood forth. So now the man with the withered hand is standing there in the midst of these people who are gathered at that synagogue on that Sabbath day. And then Jesus turned to the scribes and Pharisees and said, 
I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? A simple question. And the answer may seem apparent to us. Jesus had cut to the heart of the issue. The scribes and the Pharisees, again, they're watching to see if Jesus would heal anyone on the Sabbath day. Their concern is about the Sabbath. Would Jesus keep or break the Sabbath according to their rules and customs? What were their rules and customs? Well, it should not surprise us that the Jews had very strict regulations specifically about healing on the Sabbath day. And again, we see that the Pharisees are very sincere in their beliefs. They're very sincere. They were very serious about their beliefs. They had thought about every possible activity and whether or not that should qualify as permissible work for the Sabbath. And so here's an excerpt from their rules concerning healing, specifically on the Sabbath. If a man had an ailment in his throat... He may not gargle oil, but he may swallow a large quantity of oil. And if he was healed, he was healed. It was very well. There was no breach of the Sabbath. They may not chew mastic nor rub the teeth with spice on the Sabbath day when it is intended for healing. But if it is intended for the savor of his mouth, it is allowed. And there are many more examples like this as you go through their writings. But the point is that they made these very fine and minute distinctions about what was and what was not allowed on the Sabbath. And so there they are watching Jesus to see if he's going to violate their customs and their traditions surrounding this point of God's law. And the question that Jesus brings up is a much broader issue. What is lawful on the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath for? What is the point? Is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath day? Is it lawful to save life or destroy life on the Sabbath day? Now, verse 10 tells us that after Jesus asked this question, he looked around about upon them all. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has asked a question, maybe maybe a difficult question, an uncomfortable question? And it was followed by a long, awkward silence because nobody wanted to answer. I imagine that's what this was like. Jesus asked them the question that's there in verse 9, and no one answered. Jesus gave them time. He looked around the room at all of them, waiting for a response. And you wonder that if, as Jesus went around and made eye contact with different ones of these scribes and Pharisees, if maybe they... They broke eye contact and looked down or looked away, uncomfortable with this question that Jesus had asked. Mark's account of this miracle gives us this detail. But they held their peace, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, they held their peace. And when he had looked around on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. That's in Mark chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. None of them would answer Jesus. They knew what was right, but their hearts were hardened. And they would rather see this man with the withered hand continue to suffer than give up their grounds to accuse Jesus. 
and this grieved Jesus. They were the religious leaders. They should have had compassion for this man. But their interest in this man's suffering only went as far as it was related to their desire to accuse Jesus. Their hearts were hard. May we take warning for what we see here in this account from the scribes and Pharisees. Guard against such hardness of hearts. Well, verse 10 continues, He, Jesus, then said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Jesus was not interested in debating the Sabbath with the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus knew what was right. He knew the Sabbath was for good and not evil, for saving life, not destroying life. The scribes and the Pharisees had hard hearts, and they were more concerned with the minutia of their rules than the suffering of this man. But Jesus was not bound by their disapproval. His heart was not hardened to the needs and suffering of this man. And with a heart of love and compassion, Jesus healed this man. And by performing the miracle, Jesus settled the issue. And he drove home that statement that he had made earlier, back in chapter, or excuse me, verse 5 of this text, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this did not please the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 11 tells us that they were filled with madness. And they communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. And this word madness, it's a strong word. It communicates a, a lack of understanding folly that expresses itself in violent rage. They were mad at Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees, they did not receive a rebuke from the Lord here. Now, they were rebuked, certainly, but they did not receive it. They did not benefit from it. By the words and deeds of Jesus, they should have been corrected in their thinking and set back on a right path, or at least directed toward it. But instead, they're filled with madness at Jesus. They were mad at Jesus. They may also have been mad at the people. Previously, the scribes and Pharisees had enjoyed great popularity and authority among the people. But Jesus had challenged their authority, had openly rebuked them, had demonstrated their error. And the people, at least at this point, the people had sided with Jesus. How dare they? How dare they? Part of their anger may have been directed at the people. They may have even been angry with themselves. With great subtlety, the scribes had introduced questions that were designed to undermine the authority and popularity of Jesus to cast a cloud over his ministry. But every question had been answered by Jesus and then turned back upon them. And in the end, the questions of the scribes and Pharisees had only served to undermine their authority and popularity and to cast a cloud over their ministry. And they may very well be mad at themselves for their failure to deftly handle this carpenter from Galilee. And they began to plot what they might do to Jesus. Is Jesus a problem for us? Was no longer a question in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees. They were now firmly established in their opposition to Christ and his ministry, and they began to plot how they could Get rid of him. What can we do to Jesus? We've reached the end of this text. But that isn't the end of the sermon. 
We studied the question raised by the Pharisees in verse 2. Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And we saw the response of Jesus and the use of this Old Testament illustration to show that that ceremonial law was not established for the hurt of man. And then we went on and studied the miracle that Jesus performed in this text, how he healed the man with the withered hand, and in doing so demonstrated that it it is indeed lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath day. Now I want us to go back and carefully consider the statement made by Jesus in verse 5. Luke chapter 6, verse 5, read it again. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now in this statement, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Out of all the titles used for Jesus in the New Testament, Son of Man was the title that Jesus used for himself most often. He used this title to refer to himself 78 times in the Gospels. It was also used to refer to Jesus by Stephen in the book of Acts. It's used by the writer of Hebrews and John in the book of Revelation. What is the significance of this title? Why did Jesus use this title for himself? On one hand, it's a fairly innocuous title for the Jews. It would not be immediately offensive to them. It could be interpreted multiple ways by first century Jews. Had Jesus always referred to himself as the Son of God, the Jews would have cried blasphemy. And we see examples of that happening in the Gospels. But especially early on in the ministry of Jesus, the title Son of Man did not excite them in this way. Unless if in the context Jesus defined what he meant, they usually were not excited by this title. This title didn't immediately give his enemies any ammunition to use against Jesus. And again, this was because it could be interpreted multiple ways. The title alone didn't offend Jews, again, unless Jesus had clearly defined what it meant in the immediate context. The title Son of Man has prophetic significance. By using this title, Jesus identifies himself with prophecies about the Messiah, particularly those found in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read about the Son of Man who receives a universal and everlasting dominion from God. This title with this prophecy identifies Jesus as the human representative of God before, excuse me, the human representative of God's people before God. Christ's suffering, His glory, His return in the clouds of heaven, all this and more is prophesied there in Daniel chapter 7. And this title, Son of Man, identifies Jesus with these prophecies. Now one further word of clarification on this point. The title, Son of Man, in no way detracts from Jesus' claims of divinity. Now some people have pointed to this title, and Jesus' frequent use of this title. And they say, well, see, Jesus called himself the Son of Man and not the Son of God. And they will use this to claim that Jesus wasn't really God. They extrapolate from Jesus' use of this title to their erroneous claim, their false claim, that Jesus never said he was God. Very quickly, I'm going to give you two examples in Scripture that demonstrate that the Son of Man and Son of God were united in the God-man Christ Jesus. The first example is in Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Jesus asked his disciples, 
Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And in verse 16, Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So there is one very clear example of the title Son of Man being used in the same context as Son of God. And if Peter had been wrong in this confession of faith that we see in Matthew 16, certainly Jesus would have rebuked him. But Jesus did not rebuke Peter. Jesus told Peter, God has revealed this to you. Another example is found in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, during that mock trial that the religious rulers had set up for Jesus, the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And in verse 64, Jesus answered, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Again, the language that Jesus used here alludes to those messianic prophecies that are found in Daniel 7. And in response to this statement from Jesus, those Jews who were present at that mock trial for Jesus, they rent their clothes and they said, Blasphemy! Son of Man was not a confusing title for them when Jesus used it like this. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, that He was claiming to be God, and they wanted to kill Him for it. When Jesus said, Son of Man, as He did here in verse 5 of our text, He's referring to Himself, the Son of God, the Messiah. And what did He say about Himself? The Son of Man. Jesus said, The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus was uh, was responding to that question raised by the Pharisees in verse 2. Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And with an Old Testament illustration, Jesus has already shown that there was nothing wrong with what the disciples were doing. But Jesus goes even further in his response. In effect, what Jesus said here is that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has every right to interpret the true meaning of the Sabbath and to do or to allow or to even command whatever he wills on the Sabbath. And here's a question. Does God have the right to say what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath? God instituted the Sabbath. We see all the way back in Genesis on the last day of the creation week. The Sabbath is there instituted by God. There was a large amount of formal instruction and commands to observe the Sabbath that are given in the law. God established these rules and regulations which surrounded the ceremonial keeping of the Sabbath for the Jews. And so certainly in that sense, God has the right to say what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath. But does God have a right to change those portions of the law or to give commands that supersede those instructions concerning the Sabbath. Yes. Again, God instituted the Sabbath. It's His. And He can do with it as He pleases. Now Jesus gives an example of someone profaning the Sabbath 
in obedience to God in the parallel account of this text found in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 12, in the same discussion, Jesus said to them, the scribes and Pharisees, Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? If the Sabbath was innately holy, holy in and of itself, then the priests, with the manual labor that they performed in obedience to God's command on the Sabbath, then they would profane it. And indeed, in that sense, they did profane it. But the Sabbath isn't the point. The law of God had instructed men to abstain from their menial work, right their, their livelihood, uh, those things that they had to do to uh, earn a living and things like that. That sort of work was to be abstained from on the Sabbath days. The law of God did not forbid services of religion, such as the work of the priests in the temple. Nor did the law of God forbid works of necessity or works of mercy on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, again, in their, their zeal for their religion, their zeal to do all they could in their flesh to please God in their keeping of the law, an impossible task, but they were zealous for it. They had instituted all these laws and added them on top of what God's law had said. And so they got to this point where they were forbidding, forbidding works of necessity and works of mercy on the Sabbath, which God had explicitly allowed. An Old Testament example, which illustrates this same truth, would be the siege of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6, we read how the Lord instructed the army of Israel to take Jericho. For six days, they were to march around the city one time. And then on the seventh day presumably the Sabbath, they were to march around the city seven times and then shout. And God would cause the city walls to fall and the army would be able to take this Canaanite stronghold. And God instructed them to utterly destroy it. Everything in that city that could be burned was to be burned. It was to be utterly destroyed. And whatever could not be burned was to be dedicated to the tabernacle for the Lord's service. And that's exactly what happened. For six days they marched. And then on the seventh day, God leveled the walls, and Jericho was utterly destroyed by the army of Israel. And what's interesting, if you read Jewish comments on that passage, they say the day on which Jericho was taken was the Sabbath day. And though they slew and burnt on the Sabbath day, he that commanded the Sabbath observed, speaking of God, he that commanded the Sabbath observed, commanded it be profaned. Clearly, God has every right to command what he will on the Sabbath day. And here in our text, Jesus is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed to be greater than the Sabbath. Just as he is Lord over everything else, he is Lord of the Sabbath. On his authority, it stands or falls. And really, when you look at this statement, it is a claim of deity. Jesus is claiming lordship over the Sabbath, and the only way he could have such authority was if he were God. Now, this incredible truth, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, it was received by the Pharisees unto wrath. Through the words of Jesus and the deeds which confirmed this truth, the Pharisees were filled with madness. How dare Jesus make such a claim? that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This troubled them. This angered them. This was a hard truth. And it turned them back from Christ. 
But for us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should be in awe. We should be amazed. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is greater than the law. Jesus is both the giver, the Lord of the Sabbath, the giver of the law and the fulfiller of the law. This truth that maddened the Pharisees should humble us. This truth that moved them to anger, it should move us to worship. It moved the Pharisees to plot against Jesus. It should move us to order our lives in obedience to Him. If there's anyone here who is not saved, is not a Christian, examine carefully the claim that Jesus makes in this passage. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's a claim of deity. It's a claim of lordship. The day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're told about that in Philippians 2, verse 11. And for the vast majority of people, this will be a confession made in judgment. People who, like the scribes and Pharisees, did not recognize Christ when He was revealed to them. People who hardened their hearts to the gospel light given to them. Don't harden your hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow may be your dying day. Let today be your repenting day. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Know Him as Lord in His mercy and in His grace, or you will face Him as Lord in judgment. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. An incredible statement. Much to dwell on here. May it be in the forefront of our minds as we go throughout our week. And may we so order our lives in obedience to what has been revealed here from Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for, again, giving your word to us, having so ordained that it would be inspired and preserved, that we can study it now, learn about you. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the foolish man that's spoken of in Proverbs, who, being often reproved, hardens his neck and is suddenly destroyed. May we not be like that man spoken of in the first part of the book of James, who goes to the Word of God and sees himself revealed there as in a mirror, and then goes away and forgets what he saw. Lord, may we examine our lives in light of your Word, and may we honor and glorify you as you are Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.